0: October the 25th, 2015, lecture discussion, uh, number 217 on the book of Romans, number 217 on the book of Romans, and yes, we still find ourselves at Romans 11 and Genesis 19 and Luke 17, 32 through 34, in case uh, you thought this section was nearing completion. It is, in fact, nearing completion, but it's not nearing completion, if you know what I mean. Why would you know what I mean? Um, if you do understand what I meant, run for therapy. Uh, but w- we're going to shortly be leaving the sign of Lot's wife and Lot. Notice how I put them together. Lot and Lot's wife, I, last week or last couple of weeks, I want you to start looking at the two of them as a unit that, that forms a sign. Uh, They are two components of one sign. So we're going to leave the sign of Lot, Lot's wife shortly, but not because we finished it. We never finish anything here. As you know, it's impossible to finish anything. There comes a time, though, when uh, subject fatigue uh, prevails, and and we can see that much investigation uh, has to be left behind. But uh, feel free to pursue leads on your own. As is always the case with Scripture, the, the, the discovery is unending, There's so many doors, there's so many paths, there's so many rooms. We're not going to ever exhaust them all, not enough time. Our lives are too short. But with that being true, we nonetheless endeavor to persevere, as is our assignment. We will be obedient to that. So today will be my interpretation of a machine gun approach to as many unresolved issues as possible. What I mean by that is I actually have a theory here or a plan. It may not be discernible. But what I do is I come in and I load a lot of information knowing that I'm not going to get to all of it. But I don't want to leave anything out unless somebody uh, decides to go pursue it on their own, which is what I hope for. Uh, What you do for you is always more valuable than what I do for you. It becomes yours when you are the one uh, following through with the research. Uh, and then I begin to glean through it piece by piece, picking up as many of it as I can. And then I get to a place in the series where I start blasting away. And that's what I'm going to do today. Uh, I'm going to fire away at things that we've only briefly uh, addressed in the past couple of months. And, and this is where I apologize in advance if you've come. as But if you've missed the before lectures, those of you on the Internet, uh, then you will likely feel confused and lost. Today, or exactly like everyone else who comes to beautiful downtown cliffside. Okay, so here we go. Sodom, let's go back over some things and emphasize them or reemphasize them. Sodom is very, very wicked. Okay, there is a level of wickedness there. It is, in my view, extremely high. The highest level of wickedness seen since Genesis 6. This is very high level. Blood, it's very grave sin, uh, Genesis 18:20. So begin to think about that. Blood is crying out. And God has now come. The time to repent is almost gone. There's very little time to repent. Repentance is at risk now. Sodom's time of great wickedness is going to end. And the obvious question becomes is whose blood, I don't have blood on this particular list, uh, this is more pertaining to Mark 11, but I'll move there shortly, so I'll leave it. Whose blood is in the ground crying out loudly to God for justice? Whose blood is that? The outcry, very great. You're back. Okay, you were fired that soon? Wow. Did you do something illegal in the nursery? For those of you on the internet that wonder why the nursery staff has both come with great big grins on their faces. Duct tape. You went with duct tape again, didn't you? Okay. (laughs) Where am I? Back to the obvious question. I have this this loud crying of blood from the ground. Uh, reaching God for justice, and so I have to ask: How many? Who are these people, and how many of them have been slaughtered? And for what purposes have they been slaughtered? And as you know, this is solved for us somewhat in Ezekiel sixteen forty-nine. Ezekiel sixteen forty-nine begins to tell us what's really happening in Sodom. Let me read it to you a little bit. Uh, Uh, I just kind of picked uh, some of it out, but you'll get the gist. Behold. It's a behold. This is something amazing now is going to follow. Something was happening in Sodom that is astonishingly bad. That's why the behold. This was the iniquity of Sodom. Pride. Pride? Fullness of bread. They had lots of bread. That's the great wicked... Let me keep going. Abundance of idleness... So what have they, what is God saying? Behold, after behold, He gives you pride, bread, and laziness. And then He says, neither did Sodom strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Remember again, this is after behold. Astonishing information is now coming to you. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, neither did Sodom strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty and committed abominations before me, which means against me, or if you will, uh, before his face or to his face, in your face, pick your face. But they were right before, they were doing it right up against God and they knew it. And he says, therefore, I took them away as I saw. So pridefulness of bread, abundance of idleness, And neither did they strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. If they didn't strengthen the hand, what did they do to the hand of the poor and the needy? He calls that grave evil, great evil, outcry of blood. And that tells you, by the way, if you compare that, uh, what he accuses, or what he says they had done, and you compare it to the curse of Genesis 3, 15 through 19, it becomes obvious that Sodom had devoted itself to defeating the curse. And they had succeeded. They defeated much of the curse, if not all of it. So how did they accomplish it? Put all the pieces together. They didn't need to struggle for food. They had all the food they could ever imagine. There was no toiling. There was no sweat of the brow. How did they accomplish it? Well, the outcry of blood is great. The loud cry is great. Defeating death had a price for somebody. Sodom is a slaughterhouse. The men of old of Sodom had discovered that life is in the blood, Leviticus 17.14. That is a very important verse for our time. Life is in the blood. Sodom had figured that out. And they had been about experimentation on this principle, on this truth. Life is in the blood. They weren't the first to do that, by the way. It's happened all throughout history. But uh, certainly many have figured out the way to extend life is to take life and utilize that blood somehow. That, of course, was the goal of uh, Mengele of the Nazis in World War II, just as one of the most recent, but not the most recent, is it? You, we all read the news today. You see, what were the old men of Sodom proud of? They were proud of something. They were proud of something that had that had to do with defeating the curse. They were doing something of extreme evil and doing so literally before God, face-to-face, if you will, to repeat that. Certain that God would not stop them. What reasoning could lead someone to conclude that God would not stop them, not stop you, would not come? Because ultimately, as you know, God Christ, Jesus God, did come. And he overthrew Sodom, overthrew very important that language because that connects us to the money changing temples uh, sorry the money changing tables in the temple of Mark 11:15 through 19 Christ overthrew Sodom and Christ overthrew the money changing tables both of them are now connected and Noah and all that entered the ark for example were eight total i have Noah all over this situation because Noah and Lot are always together now, remember last week, I said can't separate Lot from Lot's wife, so my box gets bigger. Noah and all that entered the ark were eight total, so what's the question there? Were Lot and Lot's wife and their children also totally eight? Henry Morris and others uh, proposed that. If so, that leaves how many children unaccounted for in this story? Four, at least. If you have the eight view, some people don't. Some people think there's a lot more. What happened to those children? Let's say, let's go ahead, grant the hypotheses or the premise, and let's accept four. What happened to those four? Where are they? Remember the typological aspect of Noah and Lot. Noah and Lot have, they are, they were real people, actual people went through actual things, actual events. It's all totally, literally true, but on top of that, they're portraits of other things. So this typological aspect is central to understanding why Christ says, Remember Lot's wife in Luke 17.32. Just to give you a repeat of some of last week. Noah is representative of the sign that is the nation of Israel. Noah goes through or is in the waters of judgment. Israel goes through or is in the tribulation. So Noah is representative of the sign that is the nation of Israel, the sign of the wife of God, or the sign of the wife of Jehovah. That's the nation of Israel. It's an incredible sign, as you know. Lot and Lot's wife are representative of the sign that is the church, or the sign of the taken bride of Christ. Again, don't find yourself. If you ever start looking at Noah, always know that you're going to have to find Lot, and then you're going to have to find Lot's wife. They are are always, not always, okay, Overwhelmingly joined Noah and Lot. As just taking Lot and Lot's wife for a second, they had two daughters in this particular aspect. Those two daughters are prominent the firstborn daughter and the younger daughter. I got two, I got a first, and I have a second. They're both women. Back I am to the sign of Israel and the sign of the taken bride. To repeat for a few seconds ago, where, where, or minutes ago? Where are these other missing children? Where are the other the other daughters and the other sons? Just for interest's sake, uh, consider this diversion. Second Peter two six through eleven tells us that Lot was described as tormented in Sodom. He's tormented. He's oppressed. He's in the midst of a slaughtering field. He's in a killing field. Why isn't he being killed? Eventually that does change. He is in some kind of authority there. A judge, if you will. He's in the political arena. But he's in a killing field and he's tormented. 2 Peter 2, 6-11 tells us. He's oppressed. The actions of the old men of Sodom, of the men of Sodom, are described as filthy. I'll put the old men there first because I want you to think, how old are they? How old are these guys? What do they look like? How much vitality do they have? Sodom is a portrait. It is an example. It is a type of the judgment of the tribulation. Uh, Luke 17, 26-29 makes that very clear. Where once again, mankind is going to be just like Sodom and just like Genesis 6. What is that? That's Noah and Lot again. Luke 17 tells us. So to repeat, Sodom was a killing a killing machine, one that was defeated, or I'm sorry, one that, def- that had defeated the curse mostly. So the old men ruled. Death by decay, that process, the death by decay process was attenuated uh, for the men, the rulership of Sodom. So now, a bunch of more questions. Notice the machine gun approach here, right? I'm just throwing information at you again and trying to answer as many of these as I can. How many children lived in Sodom? How many children survived in Sodom? The outcry of blood was great. I'm asking, is that the blood of children? Why am I asking that? Because if I'm right, and ha, duh, ha, duh, it should be easy, easily obvious why I'm asking. How many children lived in Sodom, which is a type of the coming tribulation? The outcry of blood, screaming. We have to define great as define great as God defines great. How many people are died, died there? How much blood is it? This is a very, very loud cry by definition. How many people are crying to make something of this much noise to the ears of God? Something horrific was occurring in Sodom and Gomorrah. I concur with those who suggest that the harvesting of children was central to Sodom's wickedness. As it was in the days of Noah, likewise as it was also in the days of Lot, so shall it be. Luke seventeen twenty six through twenty eight. So shall it be. So what was done in Sodom, the loud cry of the uh, of the innocent, is going to return. So the obvious question is is has it returned? Do we see it? How close is it? Is it here? So I'd look around naturally, right? I want to see those who will repeat, if those who, uh, who would repeat the filthy evil of Sodom, are they doing it now? And do they do it without any concern, without any remorse, certain that Jesus God is not going to come and stop them? Is that happening? How loud is the cry of blood? On a side note, By the way, why does God call children innocent? Because they are unjudged. That's why. On a side note, why do so many defend evil? I've never, I don't think in my lifetime, witnessed the defense of evil that I see today. Now, I understand that the technology has made it available for me to witness it. Maybe I just lived in a place where I didn't know that so many people were defending evil. But, but they seem to rush to defend evil, Isaiah 5.20. Why do so many declare evil to be good and good to be evil? I hear, I hear people now today say it is good to kill children. That's good. Who thinks that way? What has happened to these people? How can there be so much darkness? Romans one twenty one, John 3.19.20, that's how. Only a blind man cannot see the increasing darkness. Which takes us back to this story of Sodom, doesn't it? That reminds us of Sodom because I had a whole bunch of people gathered around a house trying to get at the occupants that they saw as extremely valuable and they were struck blind. Remember? Unable to see anything. They did not see Lot and Lot's wife, the two daughters, or the angels. They were unable to see. They can only grope and stumble and flail about. So I wanted to know. How long did that happen? How long did they do that? Then I start wondering about other things, as you know. The lake of fire. See, the lake of fire as opposed to where the rich Pharisee of Luke 16, 19 through 31 is. Lazarus and the rich Pharisee, Abraham's bosom uh, torments, is not the lake of fire. The lake of fire is not torments. So I want to know about the lake of fire. What does he call the lake of fire, Christ? Not only is it the lake of fire, place prepared for Satan and his angels. That's the primary purpose. It's prepared for Satan and his fallen angels. But I want to know this, just for today. How dark is utter darkness? The outer darkness, Matthew twenty-five thirty. How dark is the outer, utter darkness? Because light is what? What is light? light um, sight requires light. Our eyes are input devices. They receive light. Light is photons. Our mind uh, interprets, applies meaning, intentionality to the photons that is received through our eye system. So there's the question, is there is there any photons of light in the outer darkness? How many photons are in the outer darkness? One photon or none? If there's no photons, what do we have in the outer darkness? All we have is blindness. You need light to see. No input to the receptors. All I have is blindness. So in Sodom, I have men struck blind. No photons. So who are the struck blind in that story? It's a typological story. We've gone through it, haven't we? Who is Lot? Who is Lot's wife? Who are the two daughters? Who are the sons-in-law? Now I'm asking you, who are the struck blind? how do they apply to the tribulation when are they struck blind so let's let's read that really carefully this time because it's it's often passed by quickly and it's so important to the story of lot and the meaning of remember lot's wife so let's take a little diversion and pound at it a little bit uh. Okay, let's just start at verse nine here. Then you've got to, I'm pulling it out of context. Lot is went out to them that had gathered around his house, shut the door behind him, and this discussion of his two daughters that were virgins. Uh, he was willing to give them to these men, knowing that they would be killed. Why would he do that? The motive of Lot there becomes very important. Is he stalling? What does he believe? What is he thinking? What is his purpose? So we're now at verse 9, 19, 9. And they said, stand back. So the men that had gathered around, the old men and the young men, all of the men, uh, all of the people of Sodom that could, could accumulate there, yelled to uh, Lot to get out of the way. He's a judge. He's a high-ranking politician. Then they said, this one came in to uh, stay here. What he is is he's a, he's a resident alien and he came in to stay here. That's what it means. And he act, keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So whatever they're going to do to those inside the house, they're going to do worse to Lot at some point. That's their threat. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. So they lot is. I assume that we can decide that lot is between the door and them. How many of them are there? They're so close to pushing the breaking the door down. What kind of door was it? Was it a particle board door? Uh, the, uh, one of the great regrets of my life is putting in particle board doors. Should never have done it. I will never do it again. We'll never put in particle board cabinets ever again. This is not a particle board door. How big a door is it? How heavy is the door? They're pushing between him and they came very near to breaking the door. And he is probably between them and the door. Okay, so they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door, but the men, these the two angels, reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the door, into the house with them, and shut the door. Okay, now think that through. I got how how much I got going on here. Let's imagine the door. Let's put Lot in front of the door. They're pressing on Lot, so they're about to break the door. How much weight is on that door? Okay, so they're going to open the door. What's likely to happen now? Lot's going to fall in, I would assume, and how many are coming with him? How many we got? But somehow they're able to get Lot in and shut the door, these two angels. So it's clearly a sewer. How did that go? Try to imagine how they opened the door. That we see we can happen. We're going to open the door. Has it got a knob on it? I keep acting like it's got a knob. but does it have a knob? Do you have any door knobs? No, no door knobs. So what how does the door hinges? How's this door designed? What do they have to do to open it? By the way, there are wooden hinges. They open the door. They pull in lots. And they shut the door. But the men reached out their hands, pulled Lot in, how far away from the door were they? Pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Then, and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so they became weary trying to find the door. This is a typological. Actually, happened. This actually happened. They opened the door. They pulled Lot in. They shut the door. They blinded the men. The men became exhausted trying to find the door, and they were blind. That actually happened, but it's also a typological story, as is most of. Find Christ on every page. The men of. uh, uh, Let's just note the order here. Not the odor, the order. Sorry, medicine. The men of Sodom pressed against Lot and the door, intending to break through. Lot is between the door and the men of Sodom. So he's between the angels of Christ and the door and the men of Sodom. Lot is suddenly, quickly removed by two angels. The door is shut. Let me put that on the board. Let me make a... That's where am I going to be here? I've got to get to those vessels, I know. But for today, the door is shut. Now, the angels could have just walked out there and blew them all away, right? They don't do that. They open the door. They pull a lot in very fast. Had to be very fast, didn't it? Shut the door. Had to be re- really fast. And the door doesn't open. The door is shut. The door, The door. Now immediately, you understand again that I am uh, well, I'm emphasizing that because you should go to Noah. The men of Sodom are then struck, smote, it says in the old king James, which is killed with blindness. Yet what do they do? Listen, if we're there, we're trying to break into a door, and all of a sudden we're all blind. How's our incentive level now? If somebody blinds me, I'm, I'm probably, and they shut the door. These guys continue to try to do what? Tried to open the door, and they couldn't even find the door now. They go to the door, they can't find the door. Even struck blind, the men of Sodom, that's an interesting detail, they continue though they're blind, That's you got to pay attention to that, even struck blind, the men of Sodom persist in their attempt to kill Lot and those inside of Lot's house. They exhaust themselves, as I said, they, I find this to be revelatory, if not completely strange. It reeks of desperation. They're desperate to get in that house and get those two men that are angels, they will they're desperate. Now they're blinded. It doesn't slow them down. In the sense, they're still intent. The intensity of these wicked men is displayed for us here. What's driving them? They don't give up. It reminds me, I hate to say this, but of the Monty Python movie and the Black Knight. I know if you're old, you saw that. He's got no arms and legs, he's still trying to kill you. That's what it reminds me of. I know that's that's silly, but I, I am occasionally silly. Okay, I'm often silly. I looked at this and went, what's wrong with these people? They're so evil. They're astonishingly evil. What's driving them? What causes these men to pursue their objectives though they have been struck and rendered blind? no photons getting into their into the brain now they can't see i concede that quite a few commentators have have decided this has bothered them they have looked at this passage 19 of genesis 9 through 11 and they decided that it probably isn't blindness even though it says blindness They've decided it's not blindness, it is probably mental confusion, they say, not, not actual blindness. But it says blindness to me. I'll read it again. Blind. And Second Peter two makes it apparent that this event has significant typological implications. Luke seventeen places it into the tribulation. So I ask. Who are these blind men who have surrounded Lot's house intending to break through the door and seize the angels of Christ? Who are they typologically in the tribulational period? And this focus on the door. Again, I have a door to Noah's ark, right, that is shut. I have a door to Lot's house, which is shut, both Noah and Lot. Have shut doors. That's not an accident. Don't. Whenever you find Lot, find Noah. Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis six. Tribulation. All of this is together. Christ in John ten seven ten nine says what to us? I am the door. I am the only door of salvation. There is only one door of salvation. I am that door. Anybody who tries to get in, they are thieves. Calls them thieves. Well, that's interesting because that's what he calls the money changers, thieves. The blind men of Sodom cannot find Christ. They're blinded. They can't find the door. They are so evil that God eventually blinds them. That's a solemn passage in Genesis 19, 9 through 11. (coughs) Remember, whatever this evil is, and I'll, I'll allow you to think it's something else, but I, I, I don't believe that the other views on what the evil is in Sodom—one uh, have returned. Two, I don't, and I don't believe that they rise to the level of evil that God calls great. But whatever it is, the evil of Sodom is so intense that God burns it to the ground. Uh, he. Supernatural bombardment. Christ Himself comes to do it. God in the flesh, a Christology or a theophany. He rains down fire on this extraordinarily sinister, menacing city. So I ask you, what other city has He done this to? I'll wait. This is unique. Sodom is unique. They were doing has not occurred yet. Though I believe we are seeing the signs of it. What other city is so treated, so uh, destroyed by Christ Himself? What is this evil that Lot feared would overtake him? He says, Listen, don't make me go to the mountains. The evil's going to overtake me. What is the evil that would overtake him? What were they going to do to him? We will treat you worse. We're going, to, we're going to take these people and destroy them somehow. But when it comes your turn, we're going to do something worse to you. So whatever they were going to do, whatever experimentation, whatever uh, destruction they were going to do on those uh, people in the house, they were going to make it worse for Lot. What was it? What could be worse? Now... Having put all of that in one little bucket, now let's move to on to the money changing. Because Christ overthrew Sodom, and likewise Christ came and overthrew the money changing. So there has to be, and there is, let me get rid of some of this now. Put over here. Just ask of it so I don't lose it from the board for next week. I have Noah and Lot and Lot's wife. That almost always solves for you what remember Lot's wife means. Okay. Money change. Overthrow, overthrew two things in Scripture that Christ overthrows Sodom and the money tables, or the money changing table. And He does it personally. So what are our known knowns with respect to the money changing of Mark eleven, fifteen through nineteen? Well, where is the money changing? It's in the temple. What is the temple? That's where God gets his mail. Think of it that way. That's his house. I've said before, there is no house of God except for the temple. Churches that call themselves the house of God are uh, misunderstanding scripture with regard to that phrase. This is the house of God. And in God's living room, if you will, uh, some will assume that this is the court of the Gentiles. Uh, I don't disagree with that. But in any event... It's in the temple or it's in the temple grounds the house of God and what was the house of God supposed to be Christ tells us the house of God is supposed to be it is a house of prayer it is designed it has all this tremendous intricate design numerical information that you can find Christ in it how many uh, how many pieces of this and how many steps and how many gates uh, there have been tremendous theological, uh, students of uh, Clarence Larkin figured out the relationship between the, the temple and us. Don't you know that you are a tabernacle? Don't you know that you are the temple? Don't you know that the pattern by which you're designed and the pattern by which the temple of God, the house of God is designed is the same, has a similarity to it. Uh, look up Larkin sometime to see his work. It's uh, astonishing. Somebody in the early 1900s all by himself does it. I have the benefit of standing on very, very many men and women. I get to read what they thought. I am a compiler. They were amazing. So we know the money changing is in the temple. It's in the house of God, that which was purposed to be the house of prayer. And instead, it has become a den of thieves so what's the obvious question? What's being stolen? From whom is it being stolen? Why is it being stolen? That's the key question in all of this. That's pretty much how we ended last week. Why are the thieves stealing it? What do the thieves get for it? He calls it a den, a den of thieves. Is he talking about money? Does God care about money? Does He really? Is it a, when somebody steals money from you? How upset is God? On a scale of one to, one to ten. See, we assume that thieves take our stuff. Does God care about your stuff? No, He doesn't. So what is He? What is being stolen? Why are there two thieves on the cross? We know that m- money changers act as intermediators. They tra- they're transferring Roman and Greek and Jewish coins. In other words, they are mixing them. You come to them with Greek, they'll give you Roman. You come with them with Roman and Greek, they can get, uh, change it into Jewish shekels. You come to them with Jewish coins, they can transfer it, if you will. They can um, uh, 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 translate it, that's probably the word I want, into Roman and Greek monies. We know that the Roman coin has the image of Caesar contrasted with the image of God. We know that the image of Caesar on his coin, that is his property that belongs to Caesar. All coins with Caesar's face or likeness on it belong to Caesar. Okay? So that which belongs to Caesar should be given to Caesar. Give the money of Caesar back to Caesar. It's his money. Implies what? It's not your money. It's Caesar's money. So we know the Roman coin that has the image of Caesar declaring Caesar to be both God and high priest. It's what it's done. And that's a violation of Mosaic life, uh, life huh? Mosaic law. Only Christ himself can be called king and high priest. That's Melchizedek. That's how you know Melchizedek, Genesis 14, is Jesus Christ himself. Only Jesus Christ can hold the title of king and high priest. Caesar has done that at that time. He says he is king and he is high priest on his coin. Anyway, the Roman coin with Caesar's image on it was therefore unclean to the Jew. As we've discussed. Pagan. Detestable. It's an anathema. So we have to have money changers. Can't even touch it. The Pharisees had no problem touching it, by the way. They had pockets full of it. That's why Christ called them hypocrites. So... That which is cursed, Caesar's coin, that belongs to Caesar, is prominent now in God's house of prayer. It's everywhere. And it's declaring another high priest and another king. And Christ is explicit. He says that his image, the image of Christ, the image of God, what, he, what is his coinage, if you will, his people, mankind. His image is on us. So what does that mean? Well, value. Yes, I agree. to have wrote it down. And that I thought of it. <laughs> if Caesar's coins belong to Caesar because they have his image on them, then we belong to Christ, to God. He owns you and me and us and your kids. We all do it. Those are our kids. That's my kids. That's my dog. No, God possesses living souls. We belong to God. The house of prayer, inside the house of prayer, is an image of a human being declaring himself to be God himself and declaring himself to be the high priest. It's not unusual for kings and leaders to declare themselves to be God. It happened in, the course of course, the Japanese culture. Hirohito right? was God during World War II. That was one of the uh, significant issues. MacArthur had to let them know that Hirohidro had been defeated and therefore was not God. Either that or MacArthur was God, and some would say MacArthur certainly thought he was. at We have many, many politicians in this country that think they are vastly superior to others. It draws them moth to a flame. People with personality disorders seem to like to be uh, politicians, police officers, psychiatrists, and pastors. Let that be a warning to you. right there. Be, be aware of that particular mathematical trend. Anyway, the house of prayer, the temple, prayer at its essence is a spiritual act. That expresses both an understanding and a submission to the truth that we belong to God. So when you pray, you are saying, I understand that I belong to you. Your image is on me. You own me. You possess me. It's an understanding of that. It's a submission to that. Our lives are his lives, not our lives. We have a tendency to think that our lives are our lives and not his life. He will correct that for all of us. So money changing also involves the purchasing and of the unbuyable. So I, first I have this image issue of money changing and that which is true and that which is false or counterfeit. Now I have money changing involving the purchasing of something that is unbuyable. Unsellable. Salvation cannot ever be bought and sold. It cannot ever be bought and sold. It is profound wickedness and evil to demonstrate or declare otherwise. See Matthew 23, 15. Jesus Christ's words. I'll read it to you here quickly. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and then he is made uh, and, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. In other words, Christ, God says to the <coughs> Pharisees, you go out, you do all of this to win one convert. And when you win that convert, you make him twice the child of hell than yourselves. Matthew twenty-three thirty-three. you serpents, you vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell God himself is saying this to the very ones in his house of prayer that are changing the money. So consider again, they are selling salvation, something that cannot be sold. Well, they're not really selling salvation. They're pretending to sell salvation, but they're really selling is death. They're selling death in God's house of prayer. Prayer is free. We talked about that last week. There are people that will try to sell their prayers to you. And if you buy them, you are a sucker. But your prayer, I hope you understand, is free. How much did you pay for your prayers last night or this morning? It's free. It's a house of free. So, I want you to think about it again. The Pharisees, they're selling salvation, they're selling death in the house of free without the slightest regard or concern of what God would do to them. It has that. It has a relationship to Ananias and Sapphira, which we brought up last week, and that this is being done with open, deliberate disrespect, a taunting, a mocking of God. I don't know what else is would be equivalent to it, I'll do my best. It would be like going into the courtroom um, and selling judgments with the judge and the attorney and the police and the court officers all sitting there going. And there you've set up shop where people would come in, you would divert them over to you and you would perform court functions. And charges them for it. That's a very bad uh, uh, analogy. But inside a place of prayer is somebody selling prayer. Makes no sense. It, and so again, it has that relationship to Ananias and Sapphira. They come in front of essentially the Holy Spirit, the face of God. And they lie to him as if he wouldn't know it. Because they don't think he will do anything. They know that they have to know that God knows it's a lie, but they assume the other people won't know it's a lie and God won't do anything about it. So who thinks like this? Who is in the house of prayer selling salvation? Who is in the house of salvation? Who is in the house of mercy? The house of free, given mercy, selling mercy? Who thinks like that? Who does that? Why do they do it? And we ended last Sunday with the question, why do so many want to buy their salvation? How come this, the line for buying salvation goes around the block 50,000 times? But the line to, to true salvation is so short. Why do so many have no fear of God and they sell it? They're in the salvation selling business. Stuns me. So I've wrestled with it for quite a while in my life. I asked it slightly differently last week. I asked, why does mankind so quickly and so willingly believe that God is evil? Because if you think that salvation can be sold, ultimately you are saying God is evil. And they want to believe God is evil. See, it is the same question. Salvation has to be given for it to be good. God must be glorified. God must be regarded as holy, Leviticus 10.3. Yet, people buying death and pre-selling death is a deluge. Billions of them. And I've long proposed that those who sell death fully know that they're doing that. They know what they're doing. They're not doing it ignorantly. They're hoping that you're ignorant. But they know that they're selling death. They are conscious money changers. They profit temporally, exchanging the spiritual for the temporal, the physical for the eternal. And they do it with complete willfulness. They have no misunderstanding. They are not good intentioned. They are not merely misguided. I have talked to them. I have worked for them. I know what they think. They get into the back rooms and they laugh. I've watched them do it many, many times. They know they are selling lies and therefore they are selling death. Matthew twenty-three, fifteen. They know that they are condemning their converts. But it doesn't matter. One of the things that Bill the Fast and I have dealt with in this church is that the truth doesn't matter to people very often. We've had them say to our face, the truth doesn't matter. Scream at them. There is no fear of God, no pangs of guilt from those who are selling death and condemning their converts. The most massive churches, if you want to call them that, the most massive religious buildings in this country uh, are pagan. they are huge, hundreds of billions of dollars in paganism. Cathedrals of glass preaching death. And the people that did it have no fear of God, no pangs of guilt. They're not misguided. They're not well-intended. They're just doing it. For the money. And I have had them say to me that uh, when I asked them, why don't you have any fear that God is going to judge you for this? Why aren't you the little bit afraid? Doesn't this bother you to know what you're about to confront? And they say to me, you have no proof. They say, you have no no proof, one-eyed fat man. I added the one-eyed fat man part. What they mean is that you have no physical proof of a spiritual God. That's what they say to me all the time. Every time, almost, uh, there's no, they read from the same book. I've always found that ironic. No physical proof of a spiritual God. Duh. Yeah. But it never, as I am predisposed to do, when I get that, I respond with a question. How is it that we have consciousness? Because consciousness is not physical. How is it that we have the power of knowing? Knowing is a power. Where did the power of knowing, where did the origin of consciousness and knowing come from? Who does it come from? That's what I ask them. You see, I have spiritual proof of the spiritual God. It is given to us. He gives us. He doesn't sell us. They, of course, know that, which further proves my point. I also submit that there's physical proof of the creator God is ridiculously evident it's overwhelming It's without controversy and I know that they know that too but they won't tell you they know that I recognize they don't regard it as such lots of them but it is overwhelming without controversy The complexity is irreducible anyway it is immediately obvious that those who sell death actually know what they're doing do they know that an accounting is soon uh, in their future maybe in any event, they don't care. They don't care. Judgment does not matter. Truth does not matter. By the way, if you declare God to be evil, judgment doesn't matter. Truth doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Everything is nothing. Which is why mankind prefers God to be evil. I asked last week, why does God want God? Why does mankind want God to be evil? Because if God is evil then nothing matters. And there is no truth. There is no judgment. There's nothing. Everything is nothing. However, if God is good, always good, always truth, always just, always holy, always glorified, then and only then, everything matters. That's the only way everything matters. So these people that try to conflate evolutionary philosophy, theological evolution, they call it, or theocratic evolution. We can't allow anything to stand that degrades the goodness of Christ. Not that we control it and not that God can be degraded. Evolutionary philosophy, evolution is a brutal process. It's carnage. It's a death-based system. It's evil. You cannot... You cannot put the two together. You cannot, add, you cannot say that God used this evil process for good. He does take evil and make it good. He says so. But he would not utilize an evil process for creation and call it good. A death-based system for those who try to compromise it and try to make it fit into the God of Scripture is simply not possible. To do so is to call God evil. You call God evil, you just become a money changer, and you are slaughtering people. You are Sodom, and he says the outcry of blood is great.